Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Fossil Bonanza. This is a podcast focused on unusual fossil sites from around the world called Fossil Lagerstaten. This is actually part two of our feature Lagerstaat, the J-Hole Biota. If you haven't listened to part one, I suggest to pause this episode, go back, listen to that episode, and then come back to this one right here. But for the rest of you, let me bring you all up to speed. Uh, last time, we basically left off with the history of the J-Hole Biota, how these animals were preserved, how we know birds evolved from dinosaurs, and its ancient ecosystem. We found out that this was basically a temperate forest full of lakes, active volcanoes, and it's because of these volcanoes that the J-Hole gets its nickname as the Mesozoic Pompeii. Because of the animal's quick burial after death and the anti-decay properties of ash, we get some amazing fossils. Animals are found with feathers, hair, stomach contents, and eggs in fantastic condition. And man, these animals can be some of the strangest creatures out there. They're pretty wild, and this is basically one of the most famous ecosystems of dinosaurian times. So let's learn all about the weird and wonderful creatures that lived in this ancient Chinese forest. This is Fossil Bonanza. So the J-Hole Biota is packed to the brim with an amazing collection of animals that make up our ancient ecosystem. One estimate I read from 2017 said that there were over 1,000 species of invertebrates and over 150 species of vertebrates, but these numbers have definitely increased since that original estimate. Because of this diversity, we can reconstruct our environment and get a pretty good idea of what this forest would have looked like. Uh, however, it should be noted that the J-Hole biota spans a time period of over 11 million years, and also across different rock formations. As such, although a broad group of animals lived in these forests, some of the exact species I mentioned will may not have had direct interactions with each other. But just keep this in mind as we go forward and learn about some of these creatures. So let's first dive into the lake and see what kind of animals swam here. The lake, as a reminder, is where a lot of these fossils were preserved in the first place, uh, through either being choked by poisonous gas or being dropped off in there through a mud flow. The animals would sink to the bottom of the lake where they would get preserved in ash, and the ash would prevent them from decaying or from any scavengers from getting into them, which is why we have such magnificent fossils that would come off from this. And as such, it may not surprise you that the most common vertebrate in the J-Hole biota are fish. After all, these fossils are preserved within layers upon layers of lake mud, so it's not shocking that animals that lived in the lake are among the most common fossils found here. And the most abundant of these fish is Lycoptera, which was a small fish that ate plankton and was likely a source of food for many larger animals. One particular standout is the oldest known freshwater lamprey, Mesomyzone. Like sharks, lampreys lack a hard skeleton 
and are rarely preserved as fossils. In fact, Mesomyzone is only the third known species of fossilized lampreys, which is crazy given how common they are in modern oceans and rivers. Yet despite it being over 100 million years old, the parasitic Mesomyzone looked very similar to its modern relatives, meaning lampreys changed very little over the course of its evolutionary history. The fish shared their lake homes with a bevy of creatures like frogs, salamanders, turtles, snails, crayfish, and bivalves. The top predators of the lake were these funny-looking reptiles called coristoderes. I might have mispronounced that word there, but that was my best shot. Some of these coristoderes were cute and small and had long necks and tails, while others were larger and crocodile-like. And they may have likely interacted with some of the other shoreline animals, but these were the top predators that lived in the lake. Now, if you were to step out of the lake, pull off the lamprey, and shake off the excess water, you might be barked at by a small, rodent-like mammal. During the dinosaur age, mammals were overshadowed by the reptilian rulers of land, constantly avoiding their huge feet and snapping jaws. A definite far cry from the modern fluttering bats, swimming dolphins, and galumphing elephants that we have today. Mesozoic mammals are exceedingly rare and fragmentary due to their minute delicacy. Prominent mammalian paleontologist George Gaylord Simpson proclaimed in 1928 that we could fit all of the Mesozoic mammalian fossils into his hat. And as you imagine, trying to reconstruct the mammalian tree of life during this time period is very, very hard, often full of missing gaps and uncertain guesses. It's actually a similar story when you think of it to the Mesozoic bird fossils who also enjoy, if you will, such rarity. Yet just like the birds, mammals have seen a recent swell of high-quality fossils which has challenged our preconceived notions of their evolution. It turns out that mammals weren't always rodent-sized nocturnal critters who just ate insects and burrowed underground. Some glided through the trees, some swam in the waters, and some can get pretty chunky. The J-Home biota sheds light on our elusive grandparents, aunts, and uncles. Just like the other animals, we find fully articulated skeletons of mammals, complete with even their fine little hairs. And it's not just a fluke. Again and again, the rocks yield to us fossils after fossils of fantastic mammals. Most of the 17 species that we found here have this level of completion, which is amazing considering that most other Mesozoic mammals that we have are only known through their teeth or partial bones. Five major groups of mammals are found at Jehol, three of which are extinct and two are still alive today. At least their direct descendants are. Those two groups of animals are the ancestor of marsupials, like kangaroos and wombats, and the ancestor of placentals, like us, your smelly cat, and that squirrel who eats your bird seed. These two groups of animals, along with the three other group of mammals, all filled in various different niches in this forested environment. Of the mammals, the one that made the most headlines was a rebellious, chunky mammal that flipped off the status quo called Repenomamus. 
This badger-sized animal is so far the largest known Mesozoic mammal. In fact, it was larger than some of the other dinosaurs in the forest. But the most eye-opening thing about Rapenomamus was a fossil of a juvenile dinosaur found in its guts. Yes, you heard right. A mammal that ate dinosaurs. Although we can't be 100% confident that it was a hunter and not a scavenger, Rapenomamus's large incisors and strong jaw muscles are indicative of a predator who could capture and hold struggling prey. This was a mammal that ate dinosaurs, and to me, that's pretty wild. Like any good terrestrial conservat Lagerstadt, Jehol has an abundance of insects. Over 1,000 specimens have been found, with over 270 species described. The sheer amount of our arthropod allies means we are still identifying and describing the various critters that lived in this forest. Unlike the much more recent Dominican amber, which had very recognizable groups of modern insects, J-Hole's insects are much more primitive. After all, this was a world that was over 100 million years old, as compared to Dominican amber's roughly 16 million year old life. So for instance, J-Hole's ancient walking sticks had pronounced wings and lacked advanced camouflage, unlike their descendants. But we can still identify broad groups of bugs here, like beetles, lacewings, and dragonflies. The sheer commonality of these fossils point to arthropods' overall importance in this ecosystem. They served as the primary food for many fish, reptiles, birds, and mammals. But the insect's importance is further compounded as some of the earliest known pollinators are found at J-Hole. Although their numbers are small, the pollinators would soon become a successful group of organisms which would dramatically rewrite ecosystem history along with their flowering allies. These dragonflies and other flying insects had to share a world that was filled with dangerous flyers. Seriously, the J-Hole forest was a madhouse when it comes to flying animals. Besides insects, you have a host of backbone animals vying for air control, one of which was the small reptile Xiang Long. Its ribs were so stretched out from its body that they formed these crazy-looking wings. Now, they didn't actually flap with these rib wings. They were more of a weird-looking glider. But it's super cool that these animals decided, you know what, I'm just going to take my ribs and make make them into wings. That is pretty awesome and pretty baller in my book. But then you have animals that could actually do powered flight, like the pterosaurs and birds, who at this time were competing for air superiority. Pterosaurs, the classic flying reptile seen in cartoons and movies, have a huge, huge representation and diversity here at J-Hole. Some had a wingspan of just a meter across, while others were up to five meters long. Some had large teeth that jutted out of their jaws, and some were completely toothless. 
Some have webbed feet to waddle across the shoreline, and others had strong claws to grip and climb trees. And although many of them ate fish, there's evidence to suggest that some may have even eaten fruits and seeds. The pterosaur fossils at Jehol are fantastic, and we can find fossils with stomach contents, wing membranes, and even embryos. It's super cool. But birds have got it made. With all the attention and publicity swirling around Jehol's birds and their beautiful feathers, it's no wonder we have a rich collection of knowledge from these amazing creatures. Since the 1990s, there have been over 50 species of birds identified, a huge jump to say the least, especially since a source from 2010 told me that the all the known species of birds at Jehol accounted for about a third of the known birds during the age of dinosaurs. That's a lot, especially coming from one site. That's a lot of birds. Most of these birds are arboreal, that is, they lived in the trees, and took on different roles in their environment, just as modern birds do. They also had a curious mix of primitive and advanced traits, meaning that bird characteristics probably evolved several times during the course of evolution. The most common bird was the pigeon-sized Confucius Ornus, with over 1,000 fossils collected. Many of these birds were found together in mass mortality layers, which probably meant that they flocked together if not enjoyed each other's company. One notable trait Confucius Ornus and its close relatives had were its horny beaks, which a lot of contemporary birds did not have. But perhaps the most striking thing about Confucius Ornus was its ribbon-like plumage of dual-tail feathers. Yet some of the birds had these plumage, but others did not, so what gives? The consensus is that the birds with the plumage were males, and those without it were females. An early example of sexual dimorphism, that is, differences between males and females. Very amazing to think that that kind of courtship and display had been going on for at least 100 million years. And it is too bad that we don't know what their colors were, but oh, wait, yes we do. Some of the more well-preserved specimens have something called melanosomes on them. Melanosomes are structures found within cells that produce color in feathers and hair. Compared to other organic compounds, melanosomes are relatively sturdy and can survive the fossilization process. By analyzing the structure and placement of melanosomes along with other pigment-inducing chemical compounds, we can have a decent idea of what these birds and their dinosaurian relatives may have looked like. This is one of the this is this is great. This is one of the new exciting fields of dinosaurian research. In the 90s, we only had the vague ideas and guesses what dinosaurs looked like, and we mostly based them off of colors of browns, greens, and grays like their reptilian colors. However, we're beginning to understand their displays thanks to the preservation of feathers. For Confucius Ornus, they may have had a spotted complexion like barn owls. This molted appearance may have been useful for camouflage, or simply to look sexy. Either or is a good answer. Speaking of incredible preservation, we can find the remains of dinners within our birds. 
Across different species of birds, scientists have found seeds and fish remains within their body. Some fossils even had gizzard stones. As a reminder, some birds, mainly herbivores, swallow stones to help them digest their hard plant food since they lack the teeth to chew them. And it's pretty interesting to think that birds have been swallowing rocks for a long time now. I want to conclude our conversation on birds with an overall appreciation of how messy evolution is. Have you seen that image of the evolution of horses? Uh, it's, it's pretty famous, especially for how long it's been used for. The basic gist of it is that it's a step-by-step evolution of horses, starting from their early ancestors, the Eohippus, which were dog-sized and had a lot of toes on them, and then gradually, over millions of years, they evolved to be bigger and lost all but one of their toes. It shows everything perfectly. It shows the gradual increase in height, the loss of excess toes, and the increased durability of teeth to reflect their grass-dominated diet. It's a nice, clean way to demonstrate evolution. Except, it's a bit too simple. The evolution of horses was not a straight, linear path. There were many branches and dead ends as horses adapted to their changing world. The same thing for the evolution of humans, too. It is a complicated tree of many hominid species who evolved and adapted and lived alongside of us and each other in various times. It's not a simple, straight path. And the evolution of birds is like this as well. When we see all the different birds at Jehol, we see population of animals that have a varied mix of ancient and advanced traits. Some had teeth, some didn't. Some had beaks, some didn't. Some had a more advanced way of flying, and others were more primitive. The evolution of birds was not a simple, uh, straight path of one successful population of birds. Many birds over many years, have evolved many different traits that helped them to survive. And through whatever reason they had, they kept some traits, they lost others, they adapted fantastic structures and features, and some they just kept because it still worked for them. But regardless, we can still appreciate the beauty of the evolution of birds thanks to all the wonderful fossils we find at J-Hole. With most watching enviously from the ground, the parentheses non-avian dinosaurs prowled the ancient forest while the pterosaurs and birds squawk and hollered above. Almost every major group of dinosaurs are found at J-Hall, occupying different roles and niches. To orient ourselves, let's briefly look at the dinosaur tree of life. Dinosaurs are divided into two groups of animals based on their hip shape. Ornitia and Sauritia. Ornitian dinosaurs have a bird-shaped hip, and Sauritian dinosaurs have a lizard-shaped hip. The Ornitians include such dinosaurs as Triceratops, Ankylosaurs, Stegosaurs, and the duck-billed dinosaurs. Sauritians include all the theropods, which were the meat-eating dinosaurs, and the sauropods, which were the long-necked dinosaurs. Within the theropods, there's a group of dinosaurs called Solilosaurus, 
which include tyrannosaurs, birds, raptors, and oviraptors, which J-Hole has a lot of. Excluding the birds, there are over 40 species of dinosaurs known at J-Hole. The most common dinosaur, and the first one found at J-Hole, is an Ornishian dinosaur called Cetacosaurus, a distant and early relative of the three-horned dinosaur Triceratops. However, unlike their great-niece, Cetacosaurus was the size of a dog, could stand on its hind limbs, and completely lacked the frills and horns. The biggest clue to its relatives, however, was its parrot-beak mouth, which other Ceratopsians had, and is the source of its name, Parrot Lizard. Cetacosaurus was akin to modern deer in this environment, and was likely a source of food for the large carnivores, including the aforementioned dinosaur-eating mammal. Speaking of which, one of the best finds from this dinosaur was a nest with one adult and 34 juveniles. This was actually mentioned uh, briefly in the previous episode, with the mudslide coming in and burrowing animals within their den. But I love this because this is a fantastic example of juvenile care found within dinosaurs. Although J-Hole has been known since the 1920s, J-Hole has majorly rethought our perception of this animal and gave it feathers. Yes, even the herbivores have feathers too, and it's quite wild to say the least. They have bristles that flared outwards from the Cetacosaurus tail and give it a hair-raising look like a prickly porcupine. Cetacosaurus may have even used them for intimidation or for communication with the rest of the herd. But you know what this means? That's right, I'm giving you full permission to crack open your old dinosaur book and draw quills on these cute little guys. It's all the rage nowadays for paleo artists, so go nuts. <laughs> Joining our parrot lizards are an assortment of other herbivores, like the 7-meter-long Ginzalzosaurus, who is a very close relative of Iguanodon, right down to its thumb spike. Additionally, sauropods, the long-necked dinosaurs, lived here based on their fragmented remains. But most curious of all, and honestly my favorite dinosaur here at J-Hole, was the primitive ankylosaur Leoningosaurus, who was really weird. And by weird, I mean it was basically a turtle. Okay, so strap yourselves in. This is great. So first, it had long legs and toes that were great for swimming in the water. It's also the only known ankylosaur with armor on its belly. No one else does it. Now, a lot of turtles have armor on their belly as well, and they use this for protection from underwater attacks. So it makes sense that our swimming dinosaur has them too. Also, most damning of all, it had fork-like teeth that were used to catch fish. And this is not just a hypothesis or a fun what-if. Fish have actually been found within their stomachs, and that's awesome. If this is true, it would be the only confirmed Ornishian dinosaur to forgo its herbivore lifestyle and eat meat. That's wild. Go you. That's awesome. Now, what's interesting about the J-Hole dinosaurs is we get a trade-off with the herbivores versus carnivores. The herbivores are relatively common, yet have low diversity, whereas the carnivores have a high diversity, 
but low commonality. What's more, the carnivores get a lot of attention at J-Hall due to their feathers and are routinely described, praised, and scrutinized. So learning about herbivores, to me, was like digging scraps out of a barrel's bottom, but for the carnivore, that barrel was overflowing and flooding our proverbial J-Hole basement. Most of our theropods, which again come from the in-group Coelosaurus, are from a smaller, are of a smaller chicken size, but they take up different lifestyles and niches. Our first theropod dinosaur found, Cynoceropteryx, which energized the birds evolved from dinosaurs debate, was amazing in more ways than one. Not only was it a nearly complete skeleton and it had preserved feathers, but it also had a pair of unlaid eggs and lizard remains found within its body. In a great leap of creative thinking, a study identified the species of lizard, then determined the dinosaur's color, and inferred through both results what kind of habitat Cynoceropteryx lived in. How? What, how, how, did this, how did they figure this out? Well, first, they inferred that Cynoceropteryx had a darker colored back and a lighter belly, which is useful to minimize detection. Based on the patterns of these colors, Cynoceropteryx was more akin towards animals who lived in open habitats rather than wooded areas. Meanwhile, the fed lizard, Dalingosaurus, had a long tail and long hind limbs, which many speedy reptiles in open habitats have today. Because of which, Cynoceropteryx lived in habitats with less trees and more exposure, meaning J-Hulk was a rich environment that had varied microhabitats. Paleontology can just be so awesome. This same study also found that Cynoceropteryx had an adorable feather-made bandit mask, like a raccoon. Uh, in fact, a lot of birds have this same kind of facial, facial feature of a dark banding over their eyes surrounded by a lighter face. Its function is still debated, but it may have been used to help reduce sunlight glare and increase camouflage. Uh, also, quick soapbox moment here, but hey paleontologists, can you, like, stop naming your fossils with the prefix Sino? It's getting a bit annoying. Like, yes, I get it, that Sino stands for China, and it makes sense that these creatures should be named on where they're found, but it's getting really annoying. There's at least 30 genera of J-hole animals with the Sino prefix, and it's very confusing to keep track of Sinornis, Sinosauropteryx, Sinornithosaurus, Sinocalyopteryx, and Sinovenator. Huh. Okay. Anyway. So like I mentioned earlier, there's a high diversity of theropods related to other groups of mainly herbivorous dinosaurs. So perhaps to take advantage of this, about 35% of theropods decided to go into the plant-eating business. On the whole, this may be surprising, but evolution has shown us that if there is a source of food that no one is taking advantage of, then someone is bound to start eating it. The panda bear is a great example of an animal from a carnivorous lineage that has gone completely vegetarian. Uh, we're going to see a, another example of this in our last episode for season one, where we're going to be talking about the Tasmanian lion. Very interesting story there. 
But in this case, we find a couple examples of two very funky oviraptor dinosaurs named Caudipteryx and Incivosaurus. Caudipteryx was among the first dinosaurs discovered at J-Hall and was part of a deluge of fossils that changed our perception of bird evolution. It is a very striking feature of long feathers coming from its forearms, yet the arms were far too short for flight. The feathers may have instead been used for display purposes. And what's interesting is that Caudipteryx has been found with gizzard stones in its body. And like we talked about earlier, gizzard stones are great for herbivorous birds to help them digest tough foods, since they lack the teeth. So it's likely that Caudipteryx was, at the very least, omnivorous, and swallowed these stones to help digest the tough plant material. Meanwhile, Caudipteryx's cousin, Incivosaurus, was very goofy looking. I suggest you Google this all or check out my website for a photo of this. But it had these two large incisors that stuck out of its upper jaw, and it had these peg-like teeth near the back of its jaw. Based on the teeth structures and wear, Incivosaurus was a highly specialized herbivore, and basically took its carnivorous teeth and made them into vegetable-chewing material. Of course, we still have the classic apex meat-eating dinosaurs at J-Hole, and the largest of which was Eutyrannus, an early relative of Tyrannosaurus rex. Clocking in at 9 meters long, this predator was the undisputed king of the forest, and may have hunted the long-necked dinosaurs. However, Eutyrannus has the honor of the largest known animal ever with feathers. That's right, even these beautiful, ferocious creatures had feathers. Its name even translates as Feathered King. Very regal name. The feathers give it an overall shaggy appearance and, as mentioned in the previous episode, may have kept it warm during the winter. Regardless, finding a large feathered dinosaur has made many people wonder if the rest of Eutyrannus' kind had feathers, like Tyrannosaurus rex. It's still a matter of debate in this regard, but... I'm hoping that we can get some concrete evidence in the near future that may tell us one way or the other. But if we were to go on the opposite end of our size spectrum, from the largest, we go to one of the smallest dinosaurs ever, fittingly named Microraptor, weighing at best a couple of pounds. Microraptor is special among our J-hole dinosaurs. Whereas its relatives use feathers for insulation or display, Microraptor used its feathers to glide and perhaps even flew. And what's more, it did it in an unusual fashion. Microraptor had long, stiff feathers coming out of its arms, its tail, and even its legs. This unusual feature has given it the nickname the four-winged dinosaur. And there's actually some debate on how Microraptor flew, with some leaning towards a weird biplane matter with its hind limbs tucked underneath its arms, while others think that the wings were more leveled with each other. Regardless on how it flew, its four weathers would have definitely hindered ground movement and leave it exposed to predators. There's no doubt that this animal preferred the trees. You may think that Microraptor specimens are rare, as such given their small size, but they're actually the most common theropod dinosaur, and as such we can reconstruct many aspects of their lives that few other dinosaurs can achieve. 
For instance, Microraptor may have been completely black with a glossy, iridescent finish on its feathers. We also know so much of what, di- of what Microraptor ate, more so than any other dinosaur. With the hundreds of specimens discovered, Microraptor has been found with ingested bird, mammal, lizard, and fish remains. Quite a wide range. And unlike other carnivores, Microraptor was a generalist, an animal that ate a broad group of foods. The fact that it ate fish meant that it even left its tree sanctuary and landed on the lakeshore for some easy meals. All of this taken into account, Microraptor is probably the most successful theropod at J-Hole, a true testament that nature rewards the weird and the different. As you can imagine, the the breadth of species and animals and plants that lived in our J-Hole ecosystems are, are quite numerous and awe-inspiring. And trying to cover every single one of them and give them the love and attention that they deserve is very, very hard and is very difficult, to say the least. And it was honestly very hard for me to try to limit it down to just the animals that I was talking about here. But I do recommend that you should all definitely look into these papers, look into the research that's being pulled from J-Hole Biota. A simple search through Google Scholar will pull you tons and tons of amazing, well-researched scientific papers that highlight all of the wonderful fossils that are found here. They're very incredible, to say the least. But I do want to end this episode on a note of caution. And that is because of the notoriety of these fossils and the amount of fame and attention and money that can be uh, obtained from them. Fakes can be an issue for the fossils here. For instance, there was a fossil found in J-Hole that was proclaimed to be a spider. And as we talked about in the previous episode, spider fossils are really rare. Uh, But upon closer inspection, and this was actually done by my colleague uh, from the University of Kansas, Dr. Matthew Downen, Upon closer inspection, it was found that it was just a crayfish that was painted over to make it look like an ancient spider. The most famous example, though, of a fake at J-Hole Biota is Archaeoraptor. And it was basically a, an amalgamation of bird and dinosaur fossils fused together to make it look like the missing link between birds and dinosaurs. And when this fossil was submitted to the prestigious journals of science and nature, they just flat out rejected it. And the people behind the Archaeoraptor then turns to National Geographic, which does not have a peer-reviewed journal system. And when they published this fossil saying it was the major, it was the missing link, it got a lot of publicity from it. But then soon it became apparent that this missing link fossil was nothing but a hoax. And very quickly, people began to point out all the irregularities and falsehoods and, and fakeness that were derived from this fossil. And National Geographic had to pull back on this article when it was revealed that, yeah, 
That was a hoax. And it was unfortunate because you have some people like creationists who jumped on this fossil saying like, oh, if we can't, uh, if we can't trust this fossil, then how can we trust the whole fossils from uh, China? How can we trust the, all, any fossils in general? This, can, this basically lends question into if evolution actually existed or not. Obviously, uh, this is not a shared thought among the scientific community. But the issue still stands that because of these fossils having such a high level of popularity and notoriety, that people are trying to get an easy buck or trying to get a moment to shine in the spotlight can do some lasting damages in the community. And the thing that I just want to stress from all this is that as paleontologists and scientists in general, you have to constantly observe Reobserve, make inferences, argue and discuss with your fellow scientists what you're seeing, what your hypotheses are, and through rigorous testing and rigorous peer review and reading of your scientific articles, could they then be published and accepted and overall be further scrutinized by the scientific community? There have been papers before that have been submitted and then later on been rejected or pulled back because of other evidence that has come to light. And that is, some, that is the big thing I want you all to take away from this, is that because of this being the, one of the top 10 most well-known recognized fossil sites in the entire world, that can carry some heavy consequences to it. On that note, I want to thank everyone again for listening to Fossil Bonanza. This was probably the hardest episode, hardest two episodes to write because of all the vast amount of species that were found here, all of the level of detail and research being published here, and its overall impact on the paleontology community. And its overall impact on not just paleontology, but the public's perception of evolution and dinosaurs. What I told you here is just the mere scratch of the surface. And I recommend you all to further read up on the material yourselves and further become enlightened about these fossils. Don't just listen to me. After all, I am just an educator who loves fossils. Read the experts' opinions. Read what they have to say. Look at the fossils as well. I I mentioned this before, but the book Flying Dinosaurs by John Fickrell was a... Very fantastic resource on for this episode. It was very helpful, and I was very happy to have it on hand when I was doing research for this episode. But in the meanwhile, you all have a great day. Thank you so much for listening. As usual, transcript of these episodes will be available on my website. Don't forget, I have my Twitter account, Fossil Bonanza, and it's almost I'm getting kind of I'm getting kind of like bittersweet here. It's I'm I'm getting kind of emotional here because the next episode will be the last episode for season 1. We're going to now turn to our attention to Australia and we're going to go spelunking? No, spelunking is underwater. Well, anyway, we're going to go exploring the caves of Australia at Narracourt Caves and we're going to be looking at Australia's megafauna and learn how Australia's wonderful, magnificent mammals went extinct. It's going to be really cool. It's going to be really amazing. But until then, take care. I love you all, and see you next time.